Welcome back to The Psychonauts, the podcast that trips into the realm of psychedelic psychiatry as hallucinogenic mushrooms go on trial in South Africa. This is science writer Leonie Jaber coming to you from Cape Town. The voice diaries in this podcast are little news snippets that I'm popping in from time to time, in between recording the formal episodes. It's a chance to get up to speed with what's happening around the world in terms of new developments in the realm of psychedelic-assisted therapy. It's a chance to discuss what's happening in drug policy reform, breakthroughs on the medical front, or activism from within the medical community and the underground psychedelics crowd. One of the first rules of podcasting is that you need to broadcast new material regularly. That's to stay on course with the issue at hand, and of course to keep a connection with you, the listeners. I've broken this rule pretty comprehensively in the past few months. The day job workload has completely derailed my attempts to get regular content out to you, and I'm sorry about that. One of the first rules of public speaking, on the other hand, is that you should never start with an apology. And I realize I've been doing a lot of that lately too, because most of the recent voice diaries have started out with explaining why I haven't been delivering content regularly. The past few months have been insanely busy. I had a fantastic book project come in, in March, which has taken up most of my time since then, and it's allowed me to put some bread on the table. The other thing, though, is that there's a lot happening behind the scenes in the psychedelic community here in South Africa. Some really exciting things. Some of this movement has involved basic networking and planning strategies for how to widen the conversation about the potential of psychedelics as medicine. Some of the activity is just basic research that is going to feed into future episodes of the podcast, and I can't wait to sit down and write those up. I've also pitched a book idea to a publisher, And there's an exciting new initiative that's trying to draw together people in the medical community to see how they can organize themselves in order to bring psychedelic-assisted therapy into our private and public healthcare systems. But all of that work has taken me away from my core purpose here, and that's to tell stories for you that reveal the strange world of psychedelics as medicine. I've got at least seven more full episodes planned for this podcast, in addition to these shorter news snippets. The tricky thing is finding the time to do them. There are a few ways to generate content for podcasts, and the most common approach is to do a question-and-answer style interview with someone. That's the fastest way to get fresh content on air. You just need to schedule an hour or two of interview time with someone who's an expert on a topic. You edit that conversation down to something bite-sized, write and record a quick introduction, and pop the whole thing online. An hour-long podcast in this format only takes about two days to organize, record, process, and then broadcast online. I've chosen a different approach. I love storytelling. It's how I've tackled science stories for the past 17 years. It's where I feel most at home. But this kind of storytelling needs to be scripted, and that takes so much longer to generate. I worked out recently that to produce a 45-minute scripted podcast using this method of showing rather than telling can take five to seven days. That's to do the desktop research, to interview the people whose stories I include in each episode, to do the editing and fact-checking, prepare to record, the recording process itself, 
Then there's the post-production and putting the whole thing online. So every time I do an episode, I need to block out at least a week of focused time. So you can see how difficult that is to juggle this with my day job. I should look into a funding model for the podcast, and I've considered Patreon as a way to get some money flowing in to support the project. I just haven't had time to figure out how the Patreon platform works. So if there's anyone out there who might be able to help me with that, I'd be really grateful. You can reach me through the website if you'd like to help. Now for the meat of today's voice diary. One of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is to look at how to mainstream psilocybin-assisted therapy here in South Africa. It's more than likely going to come here eventually, given what's happening in the United States and Europe on this front. So what can we do to speed things along from our side? Two things need to change before our medical sector can start integrating this therapy into their day-to-day practice. First, psilocybin needs to either be decriminalized or legalized for medical use. And then a community of health and lay health workers needs to be trained up in how to facilitate these psychedelic sessions. The shortage of experienced health workers in this area is where the big bottleneck is likely to be. And this is what will slow the large-scale rollout of the therapy. But that's something I'll look at in a later voice diary. Today's topic is a quick look at the legal side of things. As you'll remember, psilocybin is a Schedule 7 substance here in South Africa. It's not the mushroom that's the banned substance. It's psilocybin itself, the hallucinogenic compound inside the mushroom. That's what's ranked alongside other illicit substances like crystal meth or heroin. And a quick sidebar, almost all psychedelic compounds are listed as illicit substances in most countries around the world. And the unfortunate fallout of them being in this rogues gallery is that there's this idea that they're as dangerous and addictive as substances like heroin or tick. But they're not. And part of this podcast is to bring the latest scientific evidence to the fore to prove the point. If anything, these psychedelics are anti-addictive. And as the clinical trials and the underground experimentation is showing, they're actually effective for breaking addictions. But getting over the myths surrounding these substances is one of the big hurdles to getting drug policies shifted in this regard. You'll also remember from an earlier episode that a legal bid was due to start this year, which will aim to decriminalize psilocybin. This court process was kicked off by a 72-year-old woman from Somerset West near Cape Town who was arrested a few years ago after she was allegedly found in possession of about 2 kilograms of dried psilocybe mushrooms. These mushrooms are the kind used by the underground psychedelic community for these so-called ceremonial mushroom journeys. This is where people get together in small groups and are supervised by experienced watchers or sitters through an all-night deep-dose psychedelic session. The woman in this case is Monica Cromholt, and you can hear more about her story in episode 2 of the podcast. Following her arrest in 2014, she was charged with possession and dealing of an illicit substance. That's basically as serious as if she was a took or heroin dealer, and this could come with a 15-year jail sentence if she's found guilty. In 2016, her legal team asked the local magistrate's court to give her a stay of prosecution. This is basically a legal strategy which allows them to buy enough time to bring a case to the Western Cape High Court 
in which they plan to argue that psilocybin shouldn't be a Schedule 7 substance. The fact that psilocybin is listed as Schedule 7 means that the state regards it as dangerous and addictive and of no medical value. Cromhout's legal team will argue that this isn't the case. They plan to give evidence to show that there is no scientific data to support claims that psilocybin is addictive. They'll argue that the harms associated with it are extremely low and are easily mitigated. And they'll also argue that the substance does have therapeutic potential. This will be an opportunity to present the courts with this growing body of evidence from abroad, which confirms the potential of this compound, not just for the medical treatment of people with mood disorders and addictions, but for the general well-being of healthy people too. On the basis of this, the legal team will ask the state to decriminalise psilocybin, which will basically make it okay for anyone to use it in the privacy of their own homes. That's the first avenue for mainstreaming psilocybin here in South Africa. But that would just apply to home use. I don't know what decriminalisation would mean in terms of therapists being able to use it in their practices. I need to find out more about that still. This process hasn't started yet because the legal team is waiting for the Constitutional Court of South Africa to come back with its final ruling on a different drug-related matter. That of whether or not to uphold a 2017 High Court ruling which basically made it legal for South Africans to use cannabis in the privacy of their own homes. What the Con Court decides in this regard may set a precedent that could help the psilocybin case move forward faster. Now, I don't want to get into too much detail here, because the legal technicalities get tricky. Basically, our Constitutional Court is currently reviewing the evidence that was presented to the High Court in 2017, where three judges eventually ruled that the current laws which ban cannabis use at home is a breach of our constitutional right to privacy. The applicant in this case was Rastafarian Gareth Prince, and the plaintiff was Dacha Party leader Jeremy Acton. After this High Court ruling to decriminalise cannabis, the state decided to appeal. In the process, the Prince ruling was joined with another parallel case, which was heard in the Pretoria High Court at the same time. This was where the so-called Dacha couple, Julian Stobbs and Myrtle Clark, were also challenging the constitutionality of the laws surrounding cannabis after they were arrested and charged for possession and dealing in cannabis in 2010. Their argument is that the current laws governing cannabis are in conflict with a wider suite of constitutional rights, beyond just the right to privacy. As I understand it, this case wasn't concluded, but the two cases were then joined together when the state took the matter on appeal. The Constitutional Court judges have been mulling over the evidence since November last year. If the Con Court upholds the Prince ruling, then cannabis will be decriminalised and people will be able to grow, keep and use cannabis at home. This won't allow for the sale and distribution, but it means that using it home won't get anyone a jail term anymore. The Constitutional Court was expected to come back with a ruling in the first quarter of this year, but there's still no news. When I spoke with the court in April to get a fix on when the judges were expected to return with a finding, I was told that it would be any day now, and to just keep calling to get updates. Now we're in August and things are still quiet. So why does this matter for the psilocybin case? 
If the Constitutional Court rules that cannabis is safe enough to decriminalize and upholds the Prince ruling, which basically allows South Africans to use cannabis at their own discretion at home, then the legal team behind the psilocybin case hopes they'll be able to fast-track the decriminalization of the psychedelic. They'll basically argue that the Concord has set a precedent with cannabis. And given that all evidence shows that psilocybin mushrooms are even safer to use than cannabis, then the courts should decriminalize psilocybin too. They'll still need to present evidence to the High Court to show that psilocybin is very low risk, but it should save a long-winded and expensive legal process. If the High Court accepts this argument, the legal team reckons that psilocybin could be decriminalized here within a year. So Monica Cromhout's legal team is in a state of limbo for now, waiting to hear how the Constitutional Court decides on the cannabis issue. There's still no signal from these judges as to when they'll return with the ruling, so everything's up in the air for the time being. There are two other possible routes that could also allow for psilocybin therapy to be mainstreamed. The second route is for an individual or an organisation to approach the state medical regulatory body and apply directly to have psilocybin rescheduled from a Schedule 7 substance to a scheduling that would allow it to be legal for medical use. The South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, previously known as the Medicines Control Council of South Africa, is the regulatory body in charge of this process. I've been trying to get formal comment from the current Acting Registrar of Medicines and others within the authority about what the exact bureaucratic process is for this sort of route, but it's proved slow and rather frustrating. It's taken me more than 20 phone calls and a slew of emails to get, well, pretty much nowhere. I've been passed between five different people in the authority in the past two months, and I still don't have anything concrete to report on. Although it does look as though I might be able to pin someone fairly senior down for an interview later in September. If that doesn't work, I'm going to lean on my health journalist colleagues to help with getting access. Something else I've been trying to do at the same time is to get a sense of where the medical community in the public mental health sector is regarding global developments around the science of psychedelic-assisted therapy and how open we are to bringing it here. I've been phoning around trying to canvas opinions from academics and researchers in various university public mental health departments. And I've also been calling state bodies like the Medical Research Council. I've been trying to get comment from civil society organizations like the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, SADAG, as well as the Society of Psychiatrists and the Psychology Association of South Africa. This has been as frustrating. People just aren't returning my calls. Either they don't respond to my messages and emails, or they refer me to someone else and then the trail goes cold. I've been chasing these efforts for two months now and have very little to show for it. I don't know if people are nervous to touch on the subject. It is, to borrow a Sam Harris phrase, one of those radioactive topics. Or maybe people just don't know enough about it to feel confident going on record. Either way, it's a really important part of the story. We need to understand how much researchers and practitioners know about this field of medicine and how open they are to bringing it here. So that's one of the areas of research that's kept me so busy, but where I have very little to show for it. A third option for changing the legal status of psilocybin is a parliamentary mechanism known as the Private Members Bill. 
This is where an MP can bring an application before Parliament to have any law made or changed. I haven't looked into this too closely yet, such as which MP is likely to drive the process or what sort of case they'd need to make, but I do hope to do a story on that sometime in the future. In the meantime, the underground community of psilocybin users is thriving, and they're going ahead with the recreational and ceremonial use of the compound, in defiance of a law which many believe is unconstitutional. In one of the upcoming episodes of the podcast, I'm going to look at the question of people with life-threatening illnesses and how effective psilocybin appears to be for helping to deal with end-of-life anxiety. This episode will give us a chance to consider an interesting philosophical point. In the context where a substance has such vast medical potential, particularly to bring people relief from the existential dread of death, but where the state won't allow its citizens to access the substance. Where is the scope, then, for civil disobedience? Mm -hmm.